Well, good morning, everyone. It is a pleasure to be here. Um, I just want to say thank you for, uh, to the elders and uh, to Pastor Zach for giving me the opportunity to, to practice this gift, to, um, to, to practice this uh, uh, gift of teaching that I believe the Lord has given me. And thank you for all being here because um, even though God gives gifts, we need practice to enhance those skills and to get better. So uh, you're all kind of guinea pigs this morning, and I thank you for that. Um, also, um, you know, we, we have two gems that work up in our office. That uh, Their names are Laura and JC. They were a great help getting me on schedule and on task this morning, so I, I greatly appreciate that. I have to say... Uh, being up here kind of feels like my first date with Patty. I, I am really glad to be here, and yet I'm really nervous my voice may crack. So um, having said that, thank you for being here, and um, we're going to get into this. So uh, how many of you look forward each Christmas or Advent season to singing Christmas carols? I know I do. It's one time of the year, multi-generational congregations can enjoy singing the same hymns that have been sung for the last 100 to 200 years. I appreciate the deep theology about Jesus in many of these old hymns. I think singing these old carols in some way ties us together with the essence of our faith, the person of Jesus Christ, and with our brothers and sisters throughout the ages and throughout the world. Do you have a favorite Christmas carol? You can just nod. I do. My favorite carol is, What Child Is This? I love the melody of Greensleeves, a 16th century English folk song, and this may be part of my English heritage lodged deep in my DNA. I greatly appreciate the depths of the questions in the lyrics. What child is this? Laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping. The chorus answers that this, this is Christ the Lord, a bold and crescendoing declaration of Jesus' divinity. In the second verse, after a declaration of who this child is, another penetrating question is asked, what, why lays he in such a mean estate where ox and ass are feeding? Or rephrased for us 21st century hearers, why is this child, this child, sleeping in a donkey's trough. The chorus answers, Nails, spear, shall pierce him through, the cross born for me, for you. A strange reply which makes sense, as we will discover in a few minutes. A little personal story. I like the carol so much that the first and last time I sang a special in church was this very carol about 25 years ago. It was a duet with my son Aaron. Many of you have heard Aaron sing, and you may recall that he sings well, and he sings with great intensity and volume. As a matter of fact, Lance once told me that during high school musicals, he would have to turn up the mics of those doing solos, except for Aaron, and he would just turn Aaron's mic off when he sang, because he didn't need any amplification. I will say this, it was my last public special music appearance because despite my best efforts to sing the harmony, in reality, Aaron sang a solo. It was a lesson in humility for me. 
William Chatterton Dix wrote a poem in 1865 while convalescing from a critical illness. The insurance company manager was experiencing a spiritual revival during his recovery that led him to write several poems and hymns. I believe we sang one a couple of weeks ago. His poem, The Manger Throne, was reworked and put to the music of Greensleeves by John Stainer around 1865. As I prayed about what to share this morning, the question Dix asked, what child is this? Kept repeating through my mind like a song on an endless loop. So this morning we are going to explore from the Gospels and Paul's epistle to the Philippians the questions that Dix asked in the hymn, what child is this? So this is where we're going and this is how we're going to get there. So the first uh, point will be the mystery of the incarnation. The second point will be the virgin birth. And lastly, the humility of Jesus Christ. If you would, let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for Jesus. That, Father, in the plans and purposes of the Trinity that you ordained and purposed and planned that Christ would come, born of a virgin, to deliver your people from their sins. We thank you in this morning, Father. My prayer is that Christ would be lifted up and exalted to all who hear this morning, and that we would remember, we would remember how great our salvation is, and that it would cause us to worship and glorify our dear Savior. And this morning, Father, I pray, too, for the Holy Spirit to come and do his work in our midst. That the word would have its intended effect on all those who hear this morning. To encourage, to challenge, to rebuke if necessary. And to lead us into a deeper desire to follow after Jesus. Work in our hearts and our minds, I pray this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. So in verse 1, Dix asked this, uh, this question, What child is this? And his answer is in the chorus, This, this is Christ the King. Let me ask you this morning, how would you answer the question? Would you answer with the angel's proclamation to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2? Unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. It's how Linus answered Charlie Brown's question, what's Christmas all about anyway? This is an interesting and amazing statement that Israel's Savior was born, a newborn whom the angels declared is Messiah and who is also God. And it was spoken not to kings or priests, but to shepherds. One could dwell on that passage of Scripture for all of the Advent season and just scratch the implications. Or maybe you would answer with the archangel Gabriel's interaction with Mary in Luke chapter 1 as he announces to Mary she is favored by the Lord, that she, an engaged teenager, would conceive by the power of God and bear a son who by the declaration of his name, Jesus, was the Savior and was the Son of God, heir to the throne of David, and would reign eternally. Another one 
answer one could dwell on for the entire Advent season. And I have to ask, I wonder what the dinner conversation that evening with Mary and her family looked like. Personally, I would answer with, what child is this? With the reality, I would answer what child is this with the reality of God becoming man. The infinite taking on the finite body. The immoral taking on mortality. The all-powerful creator becoming a helpless newborn dependent on his creatures, Mary and Joseph, for his very mortal life, from swaddling clothes and breast milk to clean diapers. The incarnation of the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. It is an incredible reality. God became man, infinite taking on finiteness, immortal taking on mortality, the all-powerful creator becoming dependent upon his creatures. If you'll let me use an old saying from the 70s, it's mind-blowing. Unfortunately, the depths of this mind-blowing reality are often missed at this time of year. Maybe it's because many in our culture use, uh, have reduced the birth of Jesus to an excuse to overspend and overindulge every December. Others have exploited Jesus for their social causes, making Jesus a victim of his circumstances, and by doing so, miss the very reason for those circumstances. And yet others in liberal Protestantism deny the very thought that God would become man. To them, the incarnation is unbelievable. You have to be joking, they say, that God would become a man. Who can believe that? They scorn. They rationalize and explain the incarnation as a silly myth. And by doing so, they become the very definition of fools those who deny the existence and power of God. Brothers and sisters, I am afraid that in too many Bible-believing churches, believers don't think much about the Incarnation. We have reduced the Incarnation to stories we heard in Sunday school or children's church without meditating on the very reality that God the Son, by the preconceived plan of the Godhead, submitted himself to the humility of becoming a man in order to save us from our sins. And instead of this mystery, I still see the flannel graphs of the manger scene from my childhood. It is important at this point to clarify and define incarnation so there is no misunderstanding. Incarnation is from the Latin meaning in flesh or in fleshing. It can be used as a verb or an adjective. The verb simply means to give bodily form and substance to. The adjective means invested with bodily and especially human nature and form embodied. When we speak of the incarnation at Christmas, we mean that the eternal Son of God put on flesh and blood and became fully human. It was an act of God the Son whereby he took to himself a human nature and a human body. The human nature without sin. In the incarnation, God the Son took on humanity and entered into his creation. The limitless God and Son who is not confined by time, space, and matter entered into our reality 
into our time in space, taking on matter in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of Mary. And inconceivable to my mind is that from that time forward, God the Son has permanently united his, is permanently united to his human nature. The implications are that God the Son, most commonly referred to as Lord in the Old Testament, is forever identified with his human nature in Jesus Christ. Jesus is 100% divine and 100% human. It is a mystery. This leads to the definition of mystery, and one we should understand, and it's a truth that one can know only by divine revelation and cannot be fully understood. No one can fully understand or explain the Incarnation. It makes our head hurt thinking about it. The mystery is is that we see the reality of both natures in Jesus displayed throughout the New Testament, especially in the Gospels. But we can't fully understand or comprehend the intricacies of how it works. Just as we can't fully understand or comprehend the Trinity, one God and three distinct persons, so the Incarnation. It is a mystery, yet revealed in the Scriptures as reality. The clearest revelation of the Incarnation is found in John chapter 1, verse 14, the first part of verse 14. If you would, please turn there. John chapter 1, verse 14. It says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's a very simple statement. Here John describes the incarnation in the statement, And the Word became flesh. It is simply stated. John explains who the Word is in verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The word simply put is God. We understand him to be God the Son. Before the incarnation, the word existed like God, a spirit, without the confines of creation, time, space, and matter. He existed in perfect harmony with the Father and the Holy Spirit. The phrase, in the beginning, as many of you know and understand, is a reference to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It is a profoundly simple means of stating that the Word was not created. He always was. The next phrase, the Word was with God, insists on this understanding. How can any being be with God before the creation unless that being is himself God? And the very nature of the Word with carries carries the implication and an idea of relationship. God and the Word had intimate fellowship before the creation. John's statements take their logical conclusion in, and the Word was God, he was in the beginning with God. John, moved by the Holy Spirit, identifies a second person of the Godhead, the Word. And he goes further in verse 3 saying, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The word was an active participant in creation, not a result of creation. The word was the means in which 
was the means, the way in which all things were made. In the language of Genesis, out of nothing, the Word made all of creation. If you'll excuse me for getting a little geeky on you, let me put it to you this way. The Word created all the subatomic particles that make up elements, the smallest building block of creation. Then he combined the elements into molecules, And the Word combines the elements and the molecules to create air, water, planets, moons, stars, and galaxies. And the Word combined the elements and molecules to create DNA and proteins that are the building block of all living things. And the Word did it from nothing. Colossians 1.16 tells us that by... The Word made flesh. All creation was created through Him and for Him. Verse 17 tells us today that we are here in this place, in this building, sitting on these pews in one piece because He holds all creation together. Physicists are still discovering how He's doing it. In our Genesis Sunday School class, we discussed how the Godhead reasoned together to create man in their own image. And in making that decision, the Word created the Word created man in the image of God, knowing one day he would become inexplicably united in a mysterious way with his own creation. My mind is starting to explode with the thought and its implications. It's mind blowing. John writes, this word became flesh, and in becoming flesh like us, the word did not forsake his divinity, his wordness. John makes this clear in his gospel. The man Jesus teaches with authority never seen or heard before. He performs miracles never done before, and he makes statements that no man had ever uttered before, especially the I am statements. This title This name is the very name God uses to identify himself to Moses. Listen and hear God speak as Jesus makes these statements. John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. John 10, 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to me, sorry, no one comes to the Father except through me. John 15, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. What does John mean when he says the word became flesh? John is explaining the incarnation. In the incarnation, the human and divine natures were mysteriously united. The natures are not confused or changed. Miraculously and mysteriously, the human nature remained a truly human nature. 
And the divine nature remained a truly divine nature. Or as the Chalcedonian Creed says, the property and essence of each nature was preserved. How this works is a mystery. And here are two ways the mystery of the incarnation is displayed in the Gospels. One nature does some things that the other nature does not do. So as an example of this, if you recall, when Jesus grew weak and tired in his humanness, when he was in a boat sleeping as a storm raged, yet in his divine nature was all-powerful, when he arose from that boat, when he was uh, awoken by his disciples, and spoke to the storm and commanded it to cease. The human nature was weak and tired. The divine nature was all-powerful. Another way this works out, anything that either nature does, the person of Christ does. This means that anything that is true of the human or divine nature is true of the person of Christ. John 8.58 says, Before Abraham was, I am. His human nature was 30 years old, but he was divine. So he is free to talk about anything done by his divine nature alone or his human nature alone as something that he did. How does this all work together? I don't know. I believe it is the greatest of all mysteries. To repeat a phrase I've heard recently, it is the mystery of mysteries. One aspect of the mystery of the Incarnation I find remarkable is that Jesus did not temporarily become a man. That's how I would have done it. But his divine nature was permanently united to his human nature, and he exists forever, not just as the eternal Son of God, but also as Jesus, the Son of Mary, and as Christ, the Messiah and Savior of his people, of us who believe. Jesus has remained and will remain fully God and fully man from his miraculous conception through all eternity future. Think about that for a while. It'll blow your mind. The incarnation is the story of Christmas, right? God becoming man. This blind, mind-blowing reality of God the Son made human, divine and human merging, Two natures in one man. That is my answer as to what child is this. Continuing in verse 1, Mr. Dix asks about the child who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping. He is pointing to the virgin birth through Mary, a key doctrine of the, the incarnation. If you would, please turn to Luke chapter 1. Verses 30 through 35 and verse 38. And Luke records this for us. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. 
And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High God will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Luke here tells us of the means of the incarnation, how it was initially accomplished. The Holy Spirit would come upon Mary and the power of God would overshadow her. Scripture teaches and we acknowledge that Mary conceived by a creative act of the Holy Spirit. It was and this is a unique act of creation on the part of and by the power of God. Gabriel visits Mary and discloses the plan of God for the incarnation, the means of the word becoming flesh. His human nature would come through Mary. Luke details her heritage. She is a descendant of Adam, Abraham, Jacob, and of Judah. And she is a descendant of King David. The choice of Mary is not random, but ordained by the Father. God had spoken of one who would crush the head of the serpent after Adam and Eve's sin in Genesis 3.15. God had promised Abraham his descendants would be as numerous as the stars and a blessing to all nations. Jacob prophesied over Judah that a king would come from his descendants. God promised to David that one of his descendants would sit on his throne forever. Her baby would be the fulfillment of all of these promises and so many more that we don't have time to mention this morning. The virgin's birth, the virgin birth was God's way of bringing about the incarnation, and the virgin birth accomplishes these important realities. The virgin birth made possible the uniting of full deity and humanity in one person. In this act, God ordained a combination of human and divine influence in the birth of Christ so that his full humanity could be evident to us from the fact of his ordinary human birth, from a human mother. And his deity would be evident from the fact of his conception in Mary's womb by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. Also, the virgin birth makes possible Jesus' true humanity without inherited sin. Jesus' conception by the Holy Spirit broke the descent from Adam and the sinful nature all humans have inherited from him. Please note, Mary found favor with God through no act of her own. She was born into the right nation, the right clan, the right family at the right time. God did all of this, not Mary. And this is another significant thought about the virgin birth and incarnation. It is all of God in his time, for his purposes, by his grace. Galatians 4, 4 teaches us, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. A biblical understanding of the incarnation through the virgin birth refutes the teaching of Islam that God had sexual relations with Mary. The Catholic Church Mary herself was immaculately conceived without sin, and Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses that Jesus is a created being. 
Before moving on to verse 2 of our hymn, I want to dwell on Mary and her response. God knew her and her character, for she says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me as you have said. We need to understand something about the consequences of Mary's humble obedience to God. Judah in the first century was a shame society. One lived according to the norms of that society because the, the shame brought upon you if you didn't live up to those norms. And it wasn't derision and scorn towards you only, but your family, especially your parents. And in this situation, it would have been against her fiancé, Joseph. Mary was engaged to be wed. In that society, she was considered married in every respect except for the consummation of the marriage. Luke tells us that after the conversation with Gabriel, Mary left Nazareth with haste and spent three months with her cousin Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. She returned home three months pregnant. Think about that. Mary is engaged to be married. She leaves home in a hurry, and she returns three months later, three months pregnant. It doesn't take much imagination to think of what people thought. Take a minute to dwell on that, the shame that she would have endured, and who would have believed her explanation? Mary's humble submission had a cost, not only in the shame she endured prior to and after Jesus' birth, but the sword that pierced her soul at his death. I have to ask, how many here would be willing to say, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me as you have said. When our culture shames us for not only believing in Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation, but having the audacity to publicly follow him in a manner worthy of our calling. I believe the day is quickly approaching when we will all have to make that decision. Verse 2 of What Child Is This opens with a question. Why lies he in such mean a state where ox and ass are feeding? The question the hymn writer is asking is, why is Christ the Lord, this child, God incarnate, sleeping in a donkey's feeding trough? It is a question asked out of recognition for who this child is contrasted with his birth in such a deplorable setting. I wonder if Mr. Dix had Philippians 2 in mind when he wrote the verse. If you would, please turn to Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 8. Paul writes to us, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In the context of Philippians, Paul is addressing a problem of inflated egos at work in the church. The fix for the situation is to look at Jesus. Paul focuses the spotlight on the incarnation in a unique manner, highlighting God the Son's mindset 
his attitude in the incarnation. We see Jesus' divinity in the statement, he existed in the form of God. The word existed is tied to the word form. It is a phrase that Paul uses to describe Jesus' divinity. The verb tense of existed tells us Jesus was in the past, is in the present, and will be in the future the form of God. He was, is, and always exists in that way. The word form is the Greek word morph. Its simplest meaning is shape or external appearance. But more importantly, it means the essence of what something is. God the Son, the second person of the Godhead, the Word before the Incarnation didn't have a shape or appearance because he was spirit. But Paul uses this word to capture Jesus' incarnate essence. What he is. He's God the Son. John's Word we just looked at. This is Paul's way of defining Jesus' divinity. Paul describes his humanity in this way in verse 7, where he says, being made in the likeness of men. And again in verse 8, when he says, being in the appearance as a man. Jesus, while existing as God, took on the likeness or appearance of men. This is Paul's way of defining Jesus' humanity. Likeness is not form. It is a word that captures the idea of what the eyes see. How a photograph captures the likeness of a person. It is not the person, but a likeness. Appearance in verse 8 is the word fashioned in Greek. I immediately think of how God fashioned Adam from the dust of the ground. Paul is very specific here. He is telling us Jesus was the form of God, not the form of men. Because that would imply that Jesus took on the very essence of men, which would include our sin nature, the one that we all have. But he was fashioned like a man. In this way, Paul defines Jesus' incarnation, his God and man. The beauty of this passage is that it describes the attitude of Jesus prior to and during the incarnation. It is one of humility and obedience, just as Mary's was. And we see this first in the phrase, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. What is implied is that Jesus was obedient to the purposes of God in his incarnation. Something that is not grasped is let go and not held on to. God the Son let go of his privilege, rights, and position as God in the incarnation. He emptied himself of these things during his incarnation, not his essence as God. In the incarnation, the word did not in any way become less of God. He was still holding together the world as Colossians 1.17 teaches. He was still all-powerful and still all-knowing as he took his first breath in and as he cried his first breath out. Mind-boggling. By his emptying, Jesus took the form and the essence of a servant. That is the contrast. That is the humanity. That is the humility, I'm sorry. Jesus said in Mark 10, 43 and 45, But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. 
For even if the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus did this knowing that he would be wrapped in flesh, still maintaining the essence of divinity, but submitting to the humility of being fashioned as a man, from conception to birth, from babe to man, including the humility of a stable birth and lying in a donkey's feeding trough. John MacArthur once stated he felt the incarnation was more of a humiliation than the cross. And I believe he is right. We see further his humility and obedience in verse 8, where it says, And he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And here we have another mystery. His incarnation is inseparably tied to his death. He was born to die. The miracle of the incarnation was for the miracle of redemption. We see Mr. Dix tie the humility of being born in Bethlehem's major to his death on Calvary's cross in verse 2. He answered the question, why is, the donkey's, why is Christ's crib a donkey's feeding trough with the chorus? Verse, nails, spear shall pierce him through the cross be born for me, for you. The humility of his birth, naked, helpless, and his life completely dependent on Mary and Joseph, is forever tied to the scandal of his death. Naked, willingly helpless, and his chosen people completely dependent on what his death accomplishes. Let me say this. The incarnation was the miracle of miracles and it was the humiliation of humiliations. So how do we respond to the incarnation in Christ's humble obedience to his humiliation? Mr. Dix's response is in verse 3 in its chorus. It says, bring him gifts. Come to him, enthrone him in your heart and worship him. So bring him incense, gold, and myrrh. Come peasant king to own him. The king of kings salvation brings. Let loving hearts enthrone him. Raise, raise a song on high. The virgin sings her lullaby. Joy, joy, for Christ is born. The babe, the son of Mary. Believers, what gifts can you bring to him this morning? You may not have gold, frankincense, or myrrh, but you do have bodies and you do have minds. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. I want to encourage you this morning to give your bodies as a living sacrifice, to put to death the passions of the flesh, as we have heard in the last couple of weeks from Pastor Zach. I would also encourage you to offer a renewed mind, a body that is increasingly devoted to putting to death its sinful passions and a mind that is thinking more and more of Jesus Christ. Dwell on the incarnation, the reality of God the Son being made flesh. Dwell on letting go of privilege, rights, and position the humility of a manger birth 
in infant dependencies, his birth tied to his death. As you practice these things, you will come to him with more frequency and consistency. I'd also like you to encourage you to slow down and think about the scripture, especially as you're reading it in your quiet time. Stop. Dwell. Meditate on what you're reading. Pray. Ask God the Holy Spirit to reveal Jesus to you. Most of you have a good and broad understanding of our faith. Thinking and meditating on the scriptures, on Jesus, moves our relationship with Jesus from knowledge of facts to intimacy. It's a wonderful journey. And in doing so, you enthrone him on your heart. You can't help but worship. This is what we were created and saved for. Believing teens, and I'm going to go out on a, on a little bit of a ledge on this one, but I can't get away from it. If this morning, if you're somewhere between 15 and in your early 20s, I want to challenge you this morning with Mary's example of obedience and humility. It's a model for you. It's a time in this age for you to humbly and obediently submit yourself to Jesus and what he has for you. That will mean different things for each of you but it does mean a move away from depending on your parents or youth leaders for your spiritual growth. It will mean learning and growing by time in the word, time in prayer, time in godly fellowship, and time in service. Our culture is screaming at you to submit to its godless ideas. Do so or suffer the consequences. Be shamed. Be canceled. What is God calling you to do? What is he calling you to do? Are you willing to follow Jesus in a culture that will shame you for speaking truth? I'd like to challenge you to think about Mary and how God chose a teenage girl from a small, insignificant village to be the means he would use to change the world. How could he change your world by your yes, Lord? As he reveals his plans for you to you, will you answer with humble obedience like Mary? Unbelievers, the incarnation was the event in our time and reality in which God and Creator chose to personally bridge the chasm between God and man that sin had created. That sin is inherent to our nature. We are born with it. It is in our DNA. We can never get rid of it. It is beyond our ability to change or to offer any kind of sacrifice to appease a holy God. The incarnation of God the Son was the purpose of saving sinners. Every believer here will tell you that they're a sinner and God came to save them. From peasants to kings, as Dix mentions, available to all, no partiality. God's grace in the death of Jesus is available to you this morning if you will confess that you are a sinner and turn from your sins. Turn from any other way of trying to please God. Believe that Jesus' death is the only way to come to God. This is the good news of the birth of Jesus, God made man. He lived a perfect life that you could not indict a horrendous death he did not deserve in order to save you from the judgment and wrath of God. This is the reason for his birth in this season. Will you humbly submit your life to him?
What child is this? God the Son incarnate. The mystery of mysteries and the humiliation of humiliations. How will you respond this morning? Let's pray. Father, would you help us to dwell on the miracle of the incarnation, the miracle of his death tied to his birth, his birth tied to his death, the miracle of his forever identifying as Jesus Christ, the Son of God, 100% divine, 100% human. Father, would we think of Mary's obedience during this season and would it become would it become more of a challenge for us to be like her, to humbly obey what you are calling us to do in, your, in our lives? Would we reflect on the attitude of Jesus in his incarnation, letting go and emptying ourselves of the great humiliation that he suffered and the cost of our redemption? Father, my prayer is is that we will start to dwell and meditate on these things, that we will move from facts to relationship and to grow in our love for you and for one another. Would grace flow from your people to all that we meet? Thank you for this time and for this place. Most importantly, we thank you for Jesus who has done so much for us. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen.